Good morning, friends and neighbors. Another glorious WZLW New York day of possibility. A sleep deprivation marathon will be great. Let's make it a charity fundraiser, huh? We'll, uh, we'll find a disease or something. What's the record on this thing? 11 days a week. 11 days? Seriously. Live from Times Square, the great WZLW Wakeathon has begun. I am going to stay awake as long as it takes to convince you to make a donation. Let's do this for all the innocent children. You'll be asleep before the first day of this circus is over. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 244. Out now on video on demand is Rapid Eye Movement, a thriller that follows a cocky radio DJ whose attempt to break the world record for staying awake is further complicated when an unknown yet dangerous caller threatens to kill him. Led by an impressive Francois Arnaud, Rapid Eye Movement is an engrossing thriller that joins the likes of Phone Booth and Talk Radio as a paranoid thriller told from the perspective of a man trapped in the comfy confines of a glass booth. Joining me now to talk about Rapid Eye Movement is the film's director and co-writer, Peter Bishai. Peter, I thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So, I was read uh, another interview you you did where you talked about the inspiration for this was a radio DJ back in 1959 saying Peter Tripp pretty much did the same thing that your DJ does in your movie. He stayed awake he, this guy actually stayed awake for 201 hours, which is around eight and a half days. Um, and right. he did it in a booth in um, Times Square. Um, what was it about that story that you saw for a real good kind of, you know, starting point for a movie that I can work with? Yeah, I mean, when I, I read that in a a behavioral psychology textbook when I was in college, well, way, way, way back, you know, and it was it, it really just kind of hit me as being something that, is extremely relatable, which is sleep deprivation. I mean, pretty much all of us have gone through sleep deprivation of, of some kind, whether we're behind the wheel, nodding off, and, you know, just inches away from disaster or cramming to stay up late to do exams or, or whatever, or children, you know, raising children, you know, parents. It, it's something we all relate to. But then when I, in the context of this guy going all the way uh, to the limit, what he thought was the limit at the time, um, was very intriguing, but I think also the, the fact that it was in Times Square, it was the, it was the mm. combination, so something that was incredibly um, intimate, you know, it's it's one guy in a confined space within a much larger space, and I think the, the combination of the intimate and this epic kind of visual thing felt very, very appealing to me in terms of what could be done as a, as a thriller. Um, in some way, you know, and, um, you know, I love confined thrillers and I love uh, just the idea that the 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 conflict that he's on that he's facing is extremely personal. It's something that he's taking on this challenge. The fact that it was real, that someone did this and there was this amazing uh, amount of, you know, data and research as to what he went through was a, it was just sort of a great place to start. Now. The DJ in your movie, Rick, he has to beat 11 days. 64, yeah, 1964, yeah. It was a few years after Peter. So Peter Tripp he did his 1959 sleep deprivation marathon in Times 16. Square. This this kind of led to a bunch of copycat, uh, uh, you know, media stunts that people did. But then this 17-year-old kid in California said, I'm going to do this. And it turned out that the there was a... a, a 
a kind of the, the leading, if not the main, the only really sleep researcher in the medical field was a guy by the name of Dr. Believe it or not, his name is Dement, right? Dr. Dement, uh, who had actually been with Peter Tripp in that, <laughs> that booth in 1959. And then he heard about this kid somehow, or maybe he got word to him that he was going to um, try to break the record himself. And so Dr. Dement also went to be with this kid and, and followed him for that amount of time. So it's, it's well recorded. And, and really to this day, that, that record stands. And the reason why it does stand is because the Guinness World Record was actually set after that. We're not doing any more of this because of the right. dangers that came with, with it. So um, Randy was uh, experienced. He, he supposedly he couldn't identify objects. Even when he picked them up, he couldn't tell what they were. Hallucinations, paranoia, all of these things. Yep. And a lot of these things are used in your movie. Rick goes through these things themselves. And it, I, I was really curious as, as to... W- you have the data, you know the side effects, you know what can happen to people when they go through that. What did you want to pick and choose in regards to that that you wanted to present on screen? Because you do some really nifty kind of stuff, like for example, um, there's a there's a scene where he talks to like this little cricket, and it just tells him this really kind of like evil stuff, you know, do this, do that, yeah. we'll have you know, all that How do you come up with stuff like that? Did you? Is there actually a, a, a circumstance where these where people went through stuff like that actually saw? Uh, creatures like this and had, were, were talking to them. I mean, how, how? where did you come up with your own kind of uh, ideas of what side effects Rick will go through? Yeah, you know, uh, I would sort of, you know, casually just pull people that I would know, you know, who, who uh, I mentioned they were working on this script or something like this about sleep deprivation, and almost everybody would talk to would say, oh, you know, I stood up for two days one time and I started hallucinating and da-da-da. And everyone has their own kind of uh, specific things uh, as to whatever that might be. A kind of common one, and I think even I know, have gone through this, you know, you, insects is something that, that we can, is a very common thing. You know, you, you kind of feel like you see bugs crawling around your eyeballs or something, or um, it's something very common that I, I noticed. Now, thinking about what to put in for those hallucinations, I wanted a variety of things. Uh, I knew that one of them was going to serve as a kind of inner voice for, for Rick, the character, and, and that it's, that while this, it's actually, it's a praying mantis that's speaking to him, you know, and, and, and he's, and he's, he's like, uh, he's really, it's really him talking to himself, right? But he, but he's, uh, and it's his, it's his doubts and his fears are kind of attacking him um, as all of his defenses are beginning to crumble. In the script originally, it was a locust, believe it or not. And and the reason I, I just went for that, I knew I wanted it to be something in the insect world that could be animated. And I went with the locust because that has a kind of plague. We, we associate locusts with plagues. And and part of the film is his journey is a kind of, uh, is an emotional journey. It's a physical journey. It's, it's a mental journey, all of which breaks down. But there's also a kind of a spiritual journey that he's on where he, his, his soul is kind of under attack. And he feels very um, much like he's being plagued. And so there's this sort of, in, in mythological terms, we associate. When it came time to do the animation, it was it was like, well, my VFX supervisor was like, you know, you know be better than a locust is a mantis. Because a locust doesn't very have many long appendages. And I think what is a mantis is, you know, can dangle his arms and legs. And it just looks very interesting to, to go with kind of thing. Um, so that's how that came about. But it was something that had to be humorous. I knew from the beginning that it was always my intention that uh, that the journey would be intense and 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 manic and crazy, but it had to be 
you know, uh, mixed with the humor because the behavior starts to become erratic and crazy, and and uh, it's I want it to be funny, and, and that's, you know, I try to take a page from from Hitchcock, who always blended humor with uh, with suspense, and that was my intention. So yeah, playing Rick in the film is uh, Francois Arnaud, and uh, apologies to anyone in Quebec if I got the pronunciation wrong there. Um, mostly known for the Borgias and Blind Spot, other great TV work as yeah. well. Um, He's in pretty much every scene in this movie. Um, how did you know that he was going to be your guy to play this character? Yeah, it, it's. I wanted somebody who uh, had to have the full range, you know, and the full range going from utterly charming and um, and and a, and a bit of a hustler, you know, that you could, you know, you knew he was had a dark edge to him, but you but you still were kind of fascinated by him. Very, you know, that New York kind of thing, and uh, and then would start to go into desperation, and then paranoia, and then and then the, and the full kind of breakdown, and to to pull off that that you know that range is is really amazing, and so you have to start with someone who is who is extremely engaging, and and a kind of like a almost like a classic leading man kind of thing, and then he goes into the opposite, which is this total you know destruction. So yeah, that that he was perfect. I mean, he was absolutely perfect. Now, when we first met to to discuss the role, he was like, uh, you know, he knew from the, <laughs> the beginning that what a daunting thing this was going to be because we were going to shoot it in Times Square for real. Yeah. And and to do that, to take on that, well, I, we actually, you know, spoke. I spoke to some other actors, and they were kind of like, oh, that that's that was scary for them, you know, to actually be that kind of exposed uh, emotionally and physically. In, in the middle of thousands of people uh, was a big challenge. And so he loved, he knew it was daunting and it was kind of scary, but he loved the challenge of it. And so I needed an actor that was going to embrace that whole thing, and he did. You mentioned just now you filmed in Times Square. Your movie's something of a rarity. It's a New York set movie that's actually filmed in New York. I, I tend to find a lot of movies that I watch sometimes that's like they film in Toronto to like double for yeah. New York for various different reasons. Um, the Times Square aspect of it, how difficult is it to try to get permission to do that? Because it's such a high congestion, high traffic area, tourism and such. Was it hard for that to do or was it as easier than people might think it is? Um, it was both. Okay, so first of all, New York City is an extremely filmmaker-friendly city. It uh, A lot of people don't even realize that. They hear New York and they think, oh, it must be crazy to, to shoot there. Generally speaking, you know, the city makes it very, very easy to get permits and things like that to uh, to shoot. However, Times Square is the one exception, all right, it, it, in terms of doing what we did, which was if we were going to shoot just, you know, with a camera and run around Times Square, that would not have been a problem. But we had to build a set, and no one has ever done that before. To actually build a whole set, put it in Times Square, and and do that, that was that was a no-go. So we came up with a plan, a technical plan, which was to take the entire set, mount it on the back of a flatbed truck, uh, build all of the lighting... And all the technical, uh, the sound, sound miking and lighting and everything that was actually built into the actual set itself in a practical way, uh, and then we would shoot handheld on the truck. And so everything was literally self-contained on this truck, so we could drive it in and out of Times Square on the road, as opposed to the pedestrian areas, which is most of Times Square is a pedestrian kind of malls where where people congregate, hmm. and which we initially thought we could just put our booth on there, but that, that was not possible. 
once we came up with this idea of putting it on this truck and, and driving it in, we met with the powers that be, and they were literally like, well, that's not good. And I said, well, but think about it. It's, we're literally just driving, parking it. We're just And, and they slowly, uh, you know, came to that, realized, actually, that's, that's really cool. And believe it or not, they were as excited about it as we were, it seemed. And, and uh, they gave us all the permits, and the we had to work out scheduling in a way that was good for them and good for us. Um, you know, we couldn't shoot consecutively, so we had to shoot like two days at a time, three days at a time over a several-week period. And um, and we we just mapped it all out and and it worked. Once we, then then once we began to shoot, it was absolutely a blast because uh, it was a very very tight schedule. So we had to work very quickly, be extremely organized. But um, which you always want to do anyways when you're making a film. But the the energy of Times Square was phenomenal. And and um, you know, you just can't fake that. You know, you, you, yeah, you can go into a studio and you can use green screen and you can try to fake all that kind of stuff. And uh, but I just, I really, one of my mandates from the beginning was I wanted to make the ultimate New York film. I wanted this to be really New York, really Times Square, real energy, real people. You know, so here was this small indie film, but we had thousands of extras every day. You know, usually in a movie when you're shooting in the streets, you kind of want to keep people away, right? We had the opposite need, which is we want to bring people in. We want people to come into our shots. We want because that's actually what's happening in the story for real. And uh, you know, uh, so we had people always in the background of, of these of the windows of the booth. Um, and then there were you know there are parts of the movie where where the characters would actually interact with people in Times Square. And in those cases, we would we had our our, our uh, production assistants uh, would rope in people, uh, you know. To actually participate in the in the in the shooting, and we couldn't. We were turning people away. People, everybody wanted to be part of this. So it was a really incredible atmosphere where it was uh, it was as if it was happening for real, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so it was, yeah. Authenticity was my number one goal in this movie. And um, I think the energy that you spoke of before, it's something that you definitely do feel. I don't think you can fabricate something like that. And energy is something that really. This is a film that has its ebbs and flows depending on where the main character's head is at. Sometimes you'll be in a downer, sometimes you want to go out there and start dancing in the middle of Times Square, and you can really feel that when watching that as well. Um, I'm yeah. curious though, the booth itself, is it as comfy as it looks? Is it as small as it looks? And if so, how do you shoot in there? Are you in there by yourself with a camera, uh, or do you, is it much more roomier than it's made out to be in the movie? Yeah, that's a great question. Now, the booth is actually a lot smaller than it looks on screen, believe it or not. The whole booth is about seven feet square. Wow. It's actually in a, it's in a diamond shape. And um, the the way to make that work was the majority of the film was shot with an 18-millimeter lens, which is a very, very wide-angle lens. And that, that doubles or triples the visual space on screen. So uh, whatever you're seeing on screen, you have to imagine it being two or three times smaller than what you're actually seeing. So that, that we had beautiful lenses that, that for this film. Uh, these, we use these vintage uh, Zeiss lenses, and uh, this, it was the same lenses that Stanley Kubrick shot his films with quite a bit. And um, so that was a really cool kind of callback. And um, they're, they're very, very organic. Uh, but this wide angle 18 millimeter is very, uh, you get the wide angle view without really very much distortion. A lot of wide angle lenses will distort quite a bit and make the actors look terrible. This had, this didn't have that problem. 
And um, but then once we're inside the booth, you know, at any given time, there was always going to be Francois, uh, often one or two other actors. And then the, the camera operator, the DP, who would be operating the camera handheld, all the, all the sound was mic'd inside the booth, and then the sound recorders was outside the booth monitoring. Um, and then that left me, and, and I really wanted to be in there. Initially, I thought I would be just outside the booth on a monitor, and, and then I would run in and out between takes. And on the very first shot, we did that, and I, I immediately knew that was not going to work because the amount of, we were under so much time pressure, just literally running in and out of a door will will can you know add a third to your to your time and and also you kind of lose the spontaneity of what's happening so I, I had to be in there as well so it's me the camera operator and at least one actor if not two or three and so in some cases there's like four or five people in there at one time and that was my biggest challenge in the movie as from a directing perspective which is how to stage it and I kind of I kind of I like to refer to it as a as a, a human Tetris game, you know, where, where we're slotting people. Like, I would move left, and you say, you move right. When you go here, you go here. So every time we have to, it's just we're constantly choreographing our movement within the booth. And uh, and as soon as I would say cut, you know, the doors would fly open, and then everyone would go out and get some air, and then the, the makeup people would come in and adjust things. And after, I mean, really after about the first half day, I think we, we got it down to a, to a pretty good, uh, well-oiled machine, you know. And um, and it was very important for me, because we're in this confined space, I, I really wanted every scene to look different, to feel different. I didn't want to just do the same, you know. It's just, uh, some people would just, you know, stick GoPro cameras in the corners and shoot the whole film like that. I said, no, this has to be shot like a really proper film, and and, and that meant a lot of different camera setups. And I wanted a variety of setups. So the way the camera moves in one scene will be different in another move, another scene, the, the where the camera is stationed. And I wanted the, the actors and the camera to, to move around each other constantly. And uh, that was, for me, the most satisfying part of making this film because I, I loved, as much as I love the the storytelling of and the emotional journey, the technical kind of dexterity that we needed as a team to work on this film was fantastic. And I really, really enjoyed that. It almost sounds like you were participating in a dance of some sort. Totally. It was choreography. Every scene had to be choreographed, and it was a dance between me, the camera, and the actors in constant movement. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And, you, and I think that can only work if you trust each other and, um, and you, you, know, you, you accept the, the limitations of what you're doing, and you not just accept it, you embrace it as a, as a challenge. And we were dancing with each other for, for two weeks there. I was That's exactly what it was. Yeah, for sure. Another element to this film is that it's, it's very much a murder mystery uh, film. Your villain, though, hardly appears on screen. It's the voice. Yeah. yeah. It's the, the voice is, is his calling card. When you're casting someone for a role like that, do you even meet... Do you just do stuff over the phone? I mean, because the voice is the number one thing and the main thing that we as the audience are going to uh, identify this, this per, the, the killer as. Um, yeah. You as a director, does the voice come first before anything else? Yes, the voice, number yeah, for sure. That, that was always going to be the number one thing. Uh, now, so I cast uh, David Rhodes, who's a fantastic uh, New York actor and uh, I'd worked with him before on my first film which was called was a comedy called The Dueling Accountant. It's when I first worked with him. So you know I, I I'm well aware of his work and his thing. And 
and uh, we, uh, he, I, he initially wasn't going to play the role. There were other actors that were in contention, and, and we auditioned a number of people. And then I said, hey, do you want to come in and read for it? So he came in, and he just blew everybody away. It's like it was incredible. So, and I think what he, he, he's largely, like, you're right, it's a disembodied thing. But when he does show up, it's, it's, it's really powerful, I think, because, because you, you, know, you don't see him so and So when you finally do, and it leads to this without giving much away. I mean, it leads to a big confrontation between between protagonist and antagonist. And uh, he brings a and this was his. It was kind of in the script, but he brought a whole other layer to it, which was which was that he was going to be a very vulnerable kind of villain. That that he had that is, is a, a character who is his motivation is pain and loss, and he does this crazy thing because of his own guilt and things like this. And he, he's just a master at, at communicating that kind of, uh, that kind of pain as, as, a, as a villain. And he's a villain that has a very specific agenda as well in, in that yeah. um, the whole point of this stunt being pulled for the first, in the first place is that it's for charity or they use it as charity. Really, it's just the, the yeah. DJ has an ego and needs reins and such, but they're doing a charity in specific to spinal muscular atrophy, um, which yeah. the, the villain has a very kind of a personal kind of link with. Um, that right. is very interesting because usually when you watch movies, it's very much kind of like a plain vanilla kind of thing. It could be, well, it's it's funny. There's a scene in the, near the start of your film where they're talking about what, you know, what can we do a charity on? And everyone goes through the different things, you know, it could be this, could be that, and they give the reasons as to why not. And then it lands on spinal uh, muscular atrophy. What was it about that specifically um, uh, that that was something that you guys because it seemed to me that's a very direct thing um, that you were trying to communicate something with the audience as well as it being part of the plot as well yeah you know so in the film near the beginning that, that you mentioned um, you know Rick the, 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 the radio DJ wants to do the sleep deprivation marathon and it's going to be a charity fundraiser you know the longer he stays awake the more money people would send in to raise money he's only interested at the beginning in just raising his ratings and he's completely self-interested yeah but he says you know I'll, let's let's pick a disease to raise money for that that will get a lot of attention and and, and pull people's people's heartstrings and and this kind of thing you know so he, he you know completely selects it out of his self-interest and and his journey is that as this crisis escalates he actually starts to empathize with people with spinal muscular atrophy and and actually that's part of his becoming a, a, a full human being which is that he moves away from self-interest into more of a, a caring for others kind of thing so uh knowing that was always the goal i i, I definitely wanted the the uh to approach it as something to do with children uh, just, just from a writing perspective, I wanted it to be a child because, in a way, it mirrors Rick's journey in that he himself has to be kind of regress into a kind of childlike state as he starts to get broken down as a human being. He, you know, all all of the exterior, external trappings of his of his image starts to break down, and he just becomes this very innocent thing. And and so I wanted that to to mirror. And then, and then it just started with research. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can easily say that I began with my co-writer, Brennan Smith, we, was, we were talking about this. We actually had almost the exact same conversation that the characters in the movie have. It's like, which disease should we pick? What would be best? What, what could we sell best kind of thing? Mm -hmm. we, we actually started with a very self-serving, you know, what would dramatically work best and what, 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 we, you know, what would get the audience going and this kind of thing. And, and, and then, you know, we didn't want to pick something that was the, that's, uh, you see a lot of in film. 
So we wanted something that was a little bit maybe unknown to people. And that, so the, it just the research led us there to, to SMA, spinal muscular atrophy. Now, as then, then I, I didn't know anything about spinal muscular atrophy. So then we started reading about it and realizing how it just you know works perfectly for the story. And then I became like, wait a second, this is the number one genetic killer of children. This is, a, this is why don't people know more about this kind of thing? And, and, uh, and so I kind of had a journey for myself that was similar to what Rick went through, which I started as, as a writer looking for the most dramatic thing and then realized that this is something so important that, and, and then, you know, hopefully our film will shed even just, a, just a, a smidgen of light on this topic because we, we came to really embrace uh, how important this is. There's a scene where Rick um, interviews a young boy who seems to be yeah. in the throes of suffering from SMA. Who was that um, young child? Yes. So his name is Dylan Cuevas, and he is an actual SMA boy. So um, everything you're seeing in that scene is is the real deal. And uh, that, in a way, I mean, that was maybe the highlight of the whole experience. Uh, you know, we're doing a film that that uh, that speaks about SMA in some way, and then we've got an actual SMA boy in there and it was um phenomenal for him phenomenal for us i mean uh francois talks about that you know he, when he was acting in that it, it, i think in that that's the last day of the marathon it's the, so he's been awake for 11 days at that point in the story so when he's so he's really at, at the bottom and um and his interaction with with dylan was very authentic he loved it. Dylan loved being part of it. It was it gave him an opportunity to to do something that uh, you know most kids don't even get to do. So um, it was it was great, and and uh, he was extremely prepared, extremely uh, courageous, and uh, and he and then there's you'll see the parents in that scene with him. Those are his real parents, and uh, as, so as a family, they not only were. Um, extremely helpful to us in shooting it but just in terms of giving us background and, and research and uh, in fact david rhodes who plays the the villain who's actually and you know related to sma in some ways as the parent of an sma kid in the story he met with them and they gave him background information and part of the research and so it was it was as a filmmaker that's the kind again the kind of authenticity that was uh, essential and um, very, very grateful for what happened there. And for everyone out there who would like to help out regards to SMA, there's a website you can go to www.curesma.org. Um, you can go there, you can donate, you can check it out and you can research it for yourself. And you can also check out Rapid Eye Movement right now available on Video On Demand. Um, and look, Peter, I thank you very much for joining me today to talk about the film and the making of it. Um, I very much enjoyed the film. Uh, I love I love me a good paranoid thriller, and this is a really good one. Uh, the titles I mentioned before, such as Thone Booth and uh, Talk Radio, definitely suits in that pantheon of that type of film right there. So, uh, Peter Bashaya, I thank you very much for joining me. Um, and hopefully everyone out there, check out the film. Check out uh, also the uh, web address that I had uh, mentioned before in regards to SMA. Peter, I thank you very much again for your time today. Thank you. It's been great talking to you.